down, keep it simple. As we were talking earlier this morning, uh, so chapter eight, verses 18 through 25, just a little bit of a reminder. Um, we're jumping into this shorter series and we just have a few weeks left, um, largely because we wanna be reminded as a church, we've come through uh, quite a bit of a shakeup with COVID and all that kind of stuff, even as we, I'm just gonna be blunt, even as we see uh, here, it's just not the same as it was in terms of church life. A lot of transition has happened. And so, and that can cause, even for myself, discouragement, it can cause discontent, and it can cause doubt. Um, and so part of what this series is intended to do is to remind us that our hope isn't ultimately in some normal context of community, but in the God of community, uh, this spirit who leads us and guides us and fans the flame of substance within the community. He is the substance. And so it's not so much, oh man, how do we, how do we deal with all that's happening? But it's like, no, let's get our hearts in line with the spirit and his work in our life. And so therefore it is the spirit led life that we're considering. So Romans chapter eight, verse 18 this morning. And the apostle Paul writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The attention of the text, if you kind of are following from, from last week a bit, that the attention of the text is now turning. We're, we're turning from the ethic of the Christian life to now the experience of the Christian life. We're going from how the Spirit leads us into purity, into Christ-likeness, but now it's changing the focus. It's how the Spirit leads us through pain, right? Or we could say the, the previous section of Romans 8 was all about how the Spirit leads us into sanctification. And, and now he's turning and he's, he's, he's focusing how the Spirit now leads us through our suffering. And so it's a transition from the ethic of the Christian life now to the experience of the Christian life. And the experience of the Christian life, oh man, will not probably involve suffering. It will inevitably involve suffering. So just look, we didn't read the verse, but chapter eight, verse 17, just prior to what we just read, Paul has said, the spirit himself bears witness 
with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. In other words, the the fullness of our salvation will only be known through the pathway of suffering. We won't finally fully know our salvation, our glorification, until we have gone through this path here now of suffering. The way to glory is the way of suffering. Now, just to be clear, like, um, even as a church family, I've sat at the table in the back with different folks, and, and it's been said, this church tends to give a lot of attention to those who are suffering. And there's always this realization, and it's a wise realization, that many in our church family are suffering in unique ways, but some sit back and say, but I'm not suffering. So this emphasis on suffering doesn't seem to always apply to me, and, and how am I supposed to engage with that? Great question, right? The way you're supposed to engage with it, if you don't feel like you're suffering, is to realize that you are part of a body, a church body, a church family made up of many members, and the members, in one way or another, will endure suffering, and as one who's a part of the body, it's your responsibility and your calling to give care to the rest of the church. And so even if you don't feel like you're in a season of suffering, these truths matter to you because you're part of a body that is inevitably going to suffer. We will go through suffering, and we must go through it well together. The question then that uh, this text begins to get at, and there, it, it, it's not kind of a full perspective, but it gives us some perspective, and that is how the Spirit actively leads us through suffering. Right? And this first point, verses 18 through 25, this is kind of the one main point, the idea, and that is this, that the Apostle Paul, he's, he's He's assuring our hearts. He's, he, he's giving us a lens to know just how the Spirit is going to be working in times of suffering. And the first way in which he's going to begin working is that he actively produces patience in those who are suffering. Patience. Whenever we're in suffering, what do we want most of all? For it to end. I don't want to be feeling what I'm feeling. I want it to end. I want, you know, the, the old mercy game. I remember playing with my older brothers where you interlock your hands and you, uh, it's like, mercy, I'm done. I don't want to keep this, keep this going, right? Again and again, the Christian is calling, mercy, mercy, let's just be done. But the Spirit, while we are just feeling in our bones, this has got to come to an end. The Spirit is producing patience in us, giving us something of perseverance, endurance through these times of suffering. That's how you can expect the Spirit to be working on your behalf. He will be actively producing patience in your life. Now, what's important as we jump into this text, verse 18 and following, 
we have to begin to recognize that Paul just doesn't say, okay, here's how patience is going to work. What he does is actually provide us something of perspective for our sufferings, right? So verse 18, just look at how, how he describes it. He says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time. That means Paul is referring, these sufferings of our present time, he's just referring to the normal daily sufferings. From the deadly threats of cancer within our bodies, to the conflicts of attitudes within the workplace, to the challenges of parenting within the home, to the car breaking down again, to the cat dying, to the endless list of home repairs for that homeowner, all the way then to the hurricanes, the wildfires, the earthquakes that happen throughout the globe. Just the normal stuff of daily suffering. Paul is saying, for I consider the sufferings of this present time. He's, consider he's putting those present sufferings into perspective. He's considering them a certain way. There's thought, there's perspective that Paul is bringing to our sufferings. And it's this perspective that I believe that the text is getting at is what the Spirit's going to use to produce patience in us. See how it works? It's not as though the, the Spirit is just going to, you know, bring His Holy Spirit wand upon you and bing, patience. No, He's going to take these glorious truths, this wonderful perspective, and He's going to take these truths and massage them into your hearts as a believer. And as He massages them into your hearts, it's going to produce staying power, patience in your life. The perspective by the Spirit will produce patience. Paul begins first then with this perspective, saying that our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is, that our experience in heaven in glory can't even compare with our present sufferings. That is, if you were to take your, your daily experiences now and the sufferings that you are facing, and you are to put them on a scale, a weighing scale, with the glories that will one day be revealed in us and to us, he's saying that it would break the scales. You can't even compare them. Have you ever wondered? <laughs> Is this suffering really worth it? Is this life really worth living with all the mess that it is? And what Paul is saying is that glory is incomparable. It breaks the scales. There is nothing of comparison, only contrast. As Paul will say in other places, he says it's just these light momentary afflictions. And Paul is no, like rookie to suffering. He knows the depths of pain and suffering, but he still says they're light and momentary in light of the great weight of glory that is producing us in the age to come. Paul is saying that there is no comparison. There is only contrast. But moreover, Paul then isn't saying 
You've got to be careful. Paul isn't saying that God will one day come along, he'll push the eject button on all our sufferings, and we'll just end up in a better place. We, we have a lot of, you know, we've had a lot of kids come and go out of our home over the last few years, and there are moments of scraped knees and crying for whatever reason. And you know what we oftentimes do? Just so we can get a little bit of relief from their crying and whining, it is like whatever we can find, a popsicle, you know, sit in front of a screen, and anything to get your mind off the pain. What Paul is saying here in terms of glory coming and it being incomparable to the sufferings that we are facing now, what Paul is not saying is that God is just sticking a popsicle in our mouth so as to pacify these sufferings that we're enduring. He's not just pushing the eject button on our situations now and just sending us to a better place so we just forget all the stuff that ever happened here in this life. What Paul is saying is these things are incomparable, but they are inevitably linked together. You can't have glory without suffering, and the suffering is going to have impact upon glory. So that, if you look down in verse 22, I believe it is, Paul will actually talk about these the category of suffering and the category of glory and say it's like birth pains. The sufferings that you're experiencing now are but birth pains. They're leading to something good. They're of absolute necessity for what glory will bring. Do you see? Our suffering now isn't just something that we get to escape. It's absolutely necessary for what will be in glory. These two categories of suffering and glory are not, not separated. They are interwoven together. What Paul is literally doing, he's taking kind of the threads of all of our suffering, all the bulky, messy threads and all the delicate, fine nuances of all our suffering, and he's weaving it in to the fabric of glory, saying... Oh, your suffering is necessary for glory, like birth pains to that of a new child. You never see a mom showing up, you know, after having, giving birth and the child laying on her chest and the mom saying, oh, you know, I'm just not sure that the nine months was worth it. She's captivated by the glory, by the life of that child. And that's what Paul is saying, that these categories go together. It's this suffering that is producing an incomparable glory. You won't be wondering if it's worth it. So Paul begins with this as kind of the, the, the perspective that he's bringing before us. But my question, and I don't know about you, how are my sufferings and my future glory linked together? Like, what are the, what are the, how does this work? How does this function together? My sufferings now leading to glory then, like birth pains to that of a new child being born. How is it that my sufferings now relate to my glory then? Well, Paul 
doesn't quite cut to the chase. He doesn't just jump in to, to answer that. Rather, he pulls back the perspective in verse 19. He says, creation awaits. Creation awaits the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, he's like, yeah, we await glory, but he's backing the perspective out, and he's, he, he's saying, but all of creation is awaiting glory. And so in verse 20, he says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Creation itself was subjected to futility. God, you could say, subjected creation to futility. Futility has the idea of this frustrated emptiness. If you really want to get the feel for what that word is, think of an addict that is dope sick. He's feeling the gnawing frustration of the emptiness. He doesn't have the drug and his body is now feeling it and feeling it deeply such that it's having a physiological impact on his being. He's got the sweats, he's got the pains, he's sick because there is this gnawing emptiness within. The text is saying the world itself was subjected to that frustrated emptiness. And God has done it. It is God who subjected the world to this place of suffering and, and has done so, remember, since the time of Adam. Adam sins, the world is cursed. And God suspends the world under that curse. God could have jumped in, wrapped everything up, been done with it, but no, God intentionally suspends the world in this frustrated emptiness. He leaves the world dope sick. Why? For the sake of hope. And you say, what hope? What hope can be found in suspending the world in all of its chaos? Well, it is expressly the hope of the cross. God suspended the world in futility in the hope of saving it from futility. You get it? He had to leave it suspended in this place of suffering so that through suffering, salvation might come. Salvation has to come through suffering. There must be atonement. There must be death. And God himself ordered Christ. Here comes Christ to enter into our sufferings, enter into our futility, to suffer that salvation might be bought for us. Salvation demands suffering. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, gives us a little insight into this, um, in, into what Christ has done. And it's the, it's the same subject matter of the sons, being sons and daughters being revealed in, in, in glory. And so Hebrews 2 verse 10 says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what 
he, listen, suffered. I don't get glory, I don't get salvation without Christ's suffering. Salvation could only be made possible through the sufferings of Christ. So this is fundamentally how our suffering relates to our glory. For glory to even be a thing for this one day new life, or if utilizing the metaphor of the text, for the, the new life of the child to arrive, it must come through the way of suffering. We don't have salvation if it's not for God suspending the world in a place of suffering. We suffer now because salvation had to come through suffering. Now, maybe you say, okay, well, why does my suffering have to continue? Christ has already come. Why does, why, why does suffering have to keep going? And the answer is because salvation continues to be offered. Salvation had to come through suffering, and salvation continues to be offered while there is still suffering. For suffering to end, oh, the offer of salvation ends. We've seen that in the book of Revelation. There's going to be a lot of suffering, and that suffering is to point people to the glories of Christ, that they would fall upon him, that they would repent of their own arrogance and come to him. And yet, what happens again and again, through layers and layers and layers of suffering, there's resistance to him. But the whole point is ultimately that salvation would be offered again and again until Christ returns. Salvation could only be made possible through the sufferings of Christ, and the offer of salvation could only be made as suffering might continue. When the age of suffering is closed, the offer of salvation is also closed. But there's more. That's all, by the way, that's all entailed in just this idea that God has subjected the world to futility, but he has done so in hope. He's done so in hope that salvation might be offered and salvation might come. But there's, there's more here to what he's saying. Have you ever wondered, as the text reads, have you ever wondered why creation, as it's personified, it's groaning, all of creation, that's what he's saying. He's, he's, he's pulling back the perspective from our own individual suffering. He's pulling back the perspective and saying all of creation is groaning. He's personifying creation as, as something that has feelings and you know, feeling the tension. And it's, it's creation itself is groaning. Have you ever wondered why creation in its groaning is awaiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That's a weird thing to say. Well, why, why isn't it just oh, all of creation is groaning, awaiting the return of Jesus, who's going to make all things new? That, that's more to our vocabulary. Jesus is going to arrive one day. He's going to come back. He's going to make all things new. Why isn't creation groaning for Jesus' return? Rather, it's that the revealing of the sons of God. What in the world? What, what does that have anything to do with the relief of the world? Our glory has everything to do with the relief of the world. When we are glorified one day, oh, creation itself knows that it will be relieved of its pains and suffering. How does that work? Well, 
Remember the storyline of Scripture. You gotta keep your head in the storyline of Scripture. Remember Adam in Genesis was given authority over, over creation, um, but he failed. And what did he do in his failure? But he gave up something of his authority to Satan. Satan now, as throughout Scripture says, he's the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, or, or even the whole earth is under the power of the enemy, 1 John 5.19. It's why Satan will go to Jesus in the wilderness temptations and legitimately offer him the nations of the world. It is Satan who has, in some sense, authority where Adam was to have authority. As some scholars say, it's, it's like Satan has stolen by, by tempting Adam and by causing him, in some sense, to sin. Satan has stolen the title deed of the planet. Satan has control over this planet, and if sin and Satan has effect upon this planet, you know there will be and is suffering. The planet suffers while authority remains in the hands of the enemy. But the revealing of the sons of God is that time when all Christians will be raised, as the text says, that we are redeemed bodily. We gain back our bodies. We are resurrected and glorified with Christ, but then together with Christ, judge the principalities and powers. To be sons of God, to be children of God, isn't just, oh, you're in the family, isn't this nice? It's not just about a place of belonging. It's about a position of authority. Creation awaits the revealing of the sons of God because when we are revealed, when we are resurrected, we are resurrected to a position to rule and reign with Christ and with Christ exact judgment upon this world and upon the enemy who stole the title deed of the planet. Does that make sense? Creation is, is on its tiptoes, waiting for resurrection day. It's waiting for us to see glory revealed in us, knowing that when we rule and reign with Christ, all suffering will be done. The curse finally and fully lifted. You say, but I thought Jesus did that. Yep. I thought Jesus bound the strong man. Like, why is there still activity of, the, of, of, of Satan throughout the world? And again, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, as is being said. We are adopted, but we are waiting adoption. All of this is, in some sense, true right now, and yet to be true in its fullness at another time. We have authority over the enemy. We can cast out any demon that might be terrorizing or afflicting Anyone, we have the right, we have the authority as sons of God. But one day, our glory as sons of God will be fully revealed. We will rule and reign with Christ. And with Christ, we will judge the world and we will judge all that which has brought injustice to this earth. <laughs> The Apostle Paul will say in other places, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, pointing to this reality that we get to judge the world. 
he'll actually say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, when, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? When you got issues within the church, he's saying, uh, why, are you going, why are you going to the structures out there without having looked to the authority that rests here with the saints? And his argument is, or do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge, listen, angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? We had a woman stay with us for almost a year who was struggling with addiction. And for whatever reason, we came across this text, and she was gripped. She says, does this mean that all the temptation and affliction that that demon of heroin has caused me, that one day I will stand to judge that demon? Yeah! Yes! For all the temptation and all the affliction and all the hardship. And that wasn't her trying to escape like her own personal responsibility. We all have personal responsibility. The devil doesn't make you do it. But he afflicts you. He tempts you. He works on your thoughts. He works on your heart. He continues to be that roaring lion just trying to find a moment of weakness to captivate you, right? It's what he does. But with all the affliction that we face in this world, one day we will stand as revealed sons and daughters. We will stand with Christ and we will bring judgment upon all injustices, all principalities and powers that have worked that injustice. We will be sons of God bringing judgment against all that has caused suffering in this world. That is why creation is looking to us Oh, when Christians are fully revealed for who they are in Christ, oh, that will be the day that then creation will be released from all its threat of suffering and curse. And that's the day after we judge the world, the principalities and powers that Jesus will make all things new. Title deed restored, right? And now there will be no threat to suffering again. Creation is looking forward to that day because they know that in what Christ has done through us and the authority that one day we will stand in to see all things judged, they know that there will be no threat to the new creation. No more suffering, no more hurt. Creation as being personified is saying, we will never groan again because we know that in the revealing of the sons of God, it's all going to be over. Everything will be judged and rightly ordered so that there is no threat of suffering again. That is why creation is looking forward to the revealing of the sons of God. So notice again, getting back to the, to the boulevard. Thank you, Tyler. How are our sufferings related to our glory? How are they linked? Remember, salvation must come through suffering. The offer of salvation can only be known through suffering. 
but suffering will finally be banished when our salvation has been fully realized. Those are the three realities that are being pushed forward in this text. Again, salvation can only come through suffering. Thank you, Jesus, right? The offer of salvation can only be known while suffering continues. For the age of suffering to end will be for the offer of salvation to end. But thirdly, suffering will finally be banished when our salvation is fully realized. When we are revealed as sons and daughters and bring judgment, suffering will be fully and finally banished. And that brings us then to the application of the passage. Patience. Don't forget where we started, right? Patience. It's these truths, it's these realities that the Spirit should be working in us to promote patience. I want an end to my pain. But I've got to remember, if my pain ends, if the age of suffering ends, so does the offer of salvation. So for those who are suffering, it should be the opportunity to say by the Holy Spirit, Oh, Spirit, give me grace to endure so that the offer of salvation can continue to be given. Maybe it's to my unbelieving kids. Maybe it's to my unbelieving family members. Maybe it's to that coworker. Maybe it's just to, to friends, those, those who God has burned your heart for. It, it is to say, Oh, God, don't, don't, end this age. Let it continue in all of its groaning so that the offer of salvation might be granted to many more. Do you see? Folks, don't, I know, and it's hard, in the midst of our sufferings, it's, it's so easy to just become self-focused, navel is so aware of the pain that we're bearing, and that's the nature of pain. It captivates our attention and holds our attention. But it's the work of the Spirit that will begin to open our eyes beyond our pain to say, oh Lord, let your gospel message, I will groan in this body, will groan in my sufferings, oh, to see your salvation continue to go forward to many more people. I don't want suffering to just end the age of suffering then, because I want to see the gospel go forward. And by the way, this is not to say, there's nuance to all of this, this is not to say that we should never pray for healing. Remember the already not yet? Remember the fact that we have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we haven't arrived at the full harvest of all that the Spirit has granted to us? That, that we are adopted as sons, but we're awaiting the adoption of sons? The same reality is true. We don't just... In this life, okay, well, I'm suffering, so I'm just not going to pray. I'm not going to seek after the Lord. No, you go. You seek after the Lord. You seek after the Lord. But if it's he giving you grace to endure, let that grace be fueled by the reality that I'm suffering and groaning here and now for the sake of seeing the gospel go forward in this age. That's the idea. Salvation had to come through suffering, so... The world's been suspended there. The offer of salvation continues to go forward because the world is now still suspended there, awaiting that day when all things will be made new. 
a few things then to just keep in mind when it comes to this spirit-produced patience. First, this patience that the spirit works within us is not naive. It's not, it's not just um, kind of like, you know, oh man, the pain, you're feeling the pains in the moment and, and this patience isn't a denial of the pain. The patience that is produced by the spirit gazes in to the turmoil of that pain. It sees it for what it really is. Verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait. It's not just this patience that is naive. Oh, I'm not going to suffer. I'm just going to deny all that stuff and live in some sort of uh, you know, spiritual utopian of denial. No, we will groan. We will groan. It's through tears and groaning and great burdens that we carry. It is, it is through all of that pain that the Spirit will be producing this patience. Such that, once again, I, I could say, I'm hurting, but if it means there is still hope for my unbelieving kids or my unbelieving neighbors, then I will endure. This is spirit-produced patience. It is not naive, and it braces all the world of grief and turmoil that we feel. But also know that spirit-produced patience doesn't mean that I have to like my suffering. It doesn't mean that I have to get good with my suffering. I think the fact that we get to judge the enemy and ensure every spirit of affliction and every terrorizing disease and ailment and injustice is finally judged demonstrates that we should not get good with our pains here and now. Perhaps a spirit-produced patience may sound like this. And knowing, these are words just knowing the pains that are experienced in our own church family. A spirit-produced patience might look like this. Cancer, Huntington's disease, you may have your hold on me now, but I revel in the day when together with Christ and for his glory, you are damned forever. I will endure now knowing that your end is coming. I think that's what spirit-produced patience can look like. I'm not just getting good with it. I'm not just kind of resigning myself. Oh, this is just the way it's got to be. No, we go to battle. Looking forward to that day when we will be revealed as sons of God in our fullness, glorified and bring judgment upon every suffering that we have faced. I think that's what spirit-produced patience can look like at times. And finally then, spirit-produced patience keeps gospel mercy central. What do I mean by that? So much of today's suffering is relational conflict. It's not just the disease we feel in our bodies and the brokenness there, but it's relational conflicts. It's the relational fallout. It's the pains of distrust. It's the pains of betrayal that we all are faced with. And while it may be right not to get good with my sufferings and pains, it's especially important in relational suffering that we remember what Paul has been saying all along through 
the letter of Romans. Romans 3. All, all, all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. In other words, you may be going through suffering, you may be facing suffering as relational conflict, but you didn't earn this salvation that you now enjoy with Jesus. You didn't deserve that salvation you now enjoy with Jesus. But Romans 5 verse 6, while you were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for you. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't forget gospel mercy. We were enemies to God. There was relational fallout, if you will, between us and God. We were the ones who were betraying him. And he had mercy on us. If you have experienced relational suffering and conflict, it doesn't mean you have to trust people. It doesn't mean you have to be best friends and, and you know, walk with those who continue to manipulate and hurt you but it does mean that you, that you can rightly say one day, one day I'm going to sit with Christ on high and see even all of these injustices made right again. And until then, you can have mercy in so much as God shows you mercy. It is not my place to go toe-to-toe -to -toe in conflict. It is not my place to tear down the other people. It is not my place to, to go to battle with them. It is my place to take security in the mercy that I have found in the gospel, knowing one day all these relational conflicts will rightly be meted out and find ultimate justice. Spirit-produced patience in this life keeps gospel mercy central. So this is it. This patience that the Spirit produces, it's not naive. It doesn't mean I have to like my sufferings, but it does mean that I need to keep gospel mercy central, remembering that, yes, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And it's with this that we say, okay, Spirit, move upon my heart, keeping those truths in mind. Salvation has come through suffering, right? The offer of salvation continues. Someday justice will be brought when our salvation is seen in full. Oh, I need those truths. Spirit, work those truths into my heart. But as you produce patience, oh, let it be purified. Let it be right. Let it be applied right to my heart. That, I, that, that it's not naive, that I'm not just... Okay, spirit produced patience, so I, I can deny the pain that I'm suffering. No, give me freedom, even if it is to not get right, to not have closure ultimately with the sufferings that I face, knowing that one day it will all be made right and I'll have a role in it all. And that, yes, this spirit produced patience demands that I remember that I was too once a sinner saved only by grace. May the work of the Spirit in our lives 
lead us in to this profound patience. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us something of staying power in the midst of pain. Spirit of God, when we are tempted even to recoil in despair, perhaps even um, begin to think that suicide is a way out of my pains. Lord, let it be that by your power you come and move upon us with these grand truths. Let it be that you massage them into our hearts. That we would know even previously in the text that we are children of God. We can take our fears and despair to you. But also we can hold on to these glorious truths. Spirit, produce a correct patience within our hearts. One that isn't just shallow, one that isn't just superficial but one that once again gives us something of that staying power through all the conflict and difficulty that we endure. Spirit, thank you for life. Thank you that you give us life. And that it is all working toward the fullness of our salvation when we as sons and daughters will be revealed for all that we are. In Jesus, we look forward to that day of glory. We look forward to that day, and until it, Spirit, grant us patience, we pray in Jesus' name. Sing this together. 